How and when did role-playing games forge their identity? When did these games shift from being war games and to being a thing in their own right? When was the elusive shift? Jay's gonna bring me back Give me a plus one to attack Oh, 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 I want to come back to the dice Oh, 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 I think I need some good advice I need a roleplay rescue, oh yeah I need a roleplay rescue, oh yeah, oh yeah Hello, rescuers. My name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue. Recently, I've been trying to finish a whole bunch of books that I've been reading, but not quite managed to complete. One of these books was the latest tome from Dungeons & Dragons scholar John Peterson, The Elusive Shift. This book revealed a number of insights, not least of which was the simple truth that there really is no discussion or debate in which I have ever shared on the topic of role-playing games, which had not already begun between the release of Dungeons & Dragons in 1974 and those first 10 years or so of the hobby. Today, I wanted to simply reflect on three areas in which the book gave me some new, or are they really actually old, things to ponder. I'm not sure this is a book for everyone, but it was a good book for me, and I wanted to share why. This is Season 8, Episode 11, The Elusive Shift. When I first saw that John Peterson, author of the acclaimed Playing at the World, a history of the development of the original Dungeons & Dragons game, when I'd read he'd written a third book, I was both delighted and intrigued. I have to admit, however, the title gave me pause. What does he mean? The elusive shift. The book begins with the fact that Dungeons & Dragons was, in 1974, promoted as a set of rules for playing fantastic medieval war games campaigns, The central questions Peterson explores are, what is the thing we call a role-playing game, and when do these games shift from being war games to becoming role-playing games? At the heart of the piece are two large questions. How do you define a role-playing game, and, as a consequence of that question, you are invited to ask, was D&D in 1974 actually, truly, the first commercial role-playing game? Peterson recovers the basic ground of his first book, Playing at the World, and the book reaches a little further forward by covering the emergent role-playing game scene through to around the mid-1980s. The epilogue introduces the arrival of Robin Laws in 1988, alongside his contemporary game designer, Jonathan Tweet. The main text, however, wraps things up around 1983 or so. If you've read Playing at the World, then you can be forgiven for feeling the first and second chapters are a rehash of old material. They did feel that way, but the summary is a useful one, and it also means that new readers don't have to read the earlier giant tome. The focus is on the dialogue between people playing these games in the early period explored, primarily through the writings submitted to early fanzines, APAs and magazines. The book itself has two sections, four chapters covering the meeting of two cultures, the wargamers and the science fiction fans, distinct groups who coalesced around the early game, how to play, designing for role play, and the role of the referee. There is an intermezzo entitled Transcending Design, and then the second half of the book covers two chapters entitled Toward a Philosophy and 
maturity. For me, it was the latter chapters that had the richest veins of treasure. Interestingly, the book itself arose from a 2013 meeting between John Peterson and Jonathan Tweet in Seattle. Tweet had asked some historical questions, the primary of which was, which game system first attempted to simulate the structure of a story rather than the physics of a world? It seems that this question was not at all straightforward to answer, and thus the book was born. Overall, Peterson's work is brief in comparison to the first tome, but retains his academic tone. He still prefers the big words that I know some in the community will find difficult to process, and I had to admit to looking up several uncommon words just to refresh my own vocabulary, an admission that honestly sits uneasily with me as a teacher. That aside, the work is readable and even, at times, entertaining. Just be aware that Peterson is an academic, and the book is therefore not a light read. What insights did I glean from The Elusive Shift? Firstly, as I mentioned in the introduction to this show, I discovered the depth of discussion that was taking place between the early adopters of D&D and then through into the early designs of derivative systems was intense. There was not a single topic of discussion I could name around the design, play and theory of role-playing games that didn't arise in the fanzines and magazines of the early hobby. Seriously, I used to think that I was somehow hanging out on the cutting edge for having read a range of theoretical posts online, books about running and playing RPGs, game design tomes, and talking really an awful lot about these games that I love. The truth is that I have been mostly rehashing old ground that was well ploughed by 1980. The biggest revelation was that the first comprehensive typological model for role-playing games campaigns, the Blackout model, or is it Blackov? I don't quite know how to pronounce his name. But Glenn Blackow's model was developed and discussed around 1980. While I was aware of the model, which broadly posits four forms that create what he terms the feel of game sessions and campaigns, I did not realise just how completely it created the terminology of role-playing game culture. I was using his terms with my friends in the period of 1984 for sure, and probably earlier, even though I never read or even saw a copy of The Wild Hunt, the fanzine in which he was published. I suspect it was the development of Black Owl's model, published by Jeffrey A. Johnson in Different Worlds 11 in 1981, that had the larger impact, but, well, you probably need me to outline the model. The Black Owl model broadly posits four forms which create what he terms the feel of game sessions and campaigns. These were always, for Black Owl, elements that GMs and players blended to create a specific flavour of gameplay at the table. Essentially, Black Owl synthesised the previous six years of discussion into a very credible and immediately usable model. Quote, Black Owl did not presume to classify published designs or even to propose a player typology, though his categories would later serve those purposes as well. End quote. The four forms were role-playing, wargaming, ego-tripping and storytelling. The third form, ego-tripping, was later modified to a slightly less pejorative term, power gaming. Tell me you haven't heard those terms before. To be honest, the book was worth reading just to revisit this model and ponder its application. Johnson's application of the Black Owl model, in which he invited players to plot their preferences onto a two-axis four-quadrant graph, plus developing the language towards a more pluralistic and inclusive tone, was a big discovery for me. Even more so, I enjoyed Bauer's suggestion that instead of positioning ourselves into gaming type, 
based on these four forms of play, we look at things in a different way. Quote, Bauer explained, while there is some truth in the notion that power gaming interferes with storytelling and role playing interferes with wargaming, it is incorrect to look upon these as opposites which never meet. Almost all games include something of all four orientations. With this in mind, Bauer drew the same two-axis picture, plotted four points showing how far into each of the four forms a particular playing style goes, and then connected the dots and shaded in the resulting shapes." End quote. Blackow and Bauer's rejection of one true wayism, another term that appeared in the 1970s by the way, warmed my heart and helped me to see that our individual styles of play overlap. We do not need to sit in camps staring and yelling at each other across hard boundaries delineated by terminology. In reality, our differences are more to do with the degree to which we prefer certain forms with our play over others. As Blackow asserted in 1980, each campaign contains elements of all of the four forms. We all roleplay, storytell, power game and simulate to some degree. The question is the degree to which any of those is prioritised in our gaming. There is probably a whole episode in which I could delve deeply into this model and the thought that it is inspired, so I will leave this insight here. Lastly, to keep this episode to my promised three insights, I was blown away by two ideas that were discussed and developed early in the hobby, but in many ways lost to posterity. In short, I was amazed to find out the roots of the nine alignment system in D&D and realised that the reason I have always found this so limiting is because I was doing it wrong, or at least wrong by the standards of the original application of this system. I was also fascinated by the discussion and recursion of the idea of role-playing as an immersion into the other world. This phrase, other world, I discovered had turned up in the mid-1970s. Overall, the book exposed to me the degree to which a statement Peterson makes towards the end of the book is true. Quote, a lack of institutional memory seemed to doom the community to reinvent many concepts in design and theory. There simply were no robust structures to preserve and transmit these ideas for future generations of gamers, even to those munchkins who would grow up and find their way to A&E in search of a deeper understanding of role-playing games. End quote. Putting aside his use of the pejorative munchkin, a term again that had turned up by 1980, I was left with the impression that the more recent theorists owe much to now largely forgotten game designers who have simply been obscured by the incredibly diverse and dispersed nature of role-playing publication in the early hobby. So there you go, those were my key insights. First of all, there's really nothing new in this hobby. Secondly, the Black Owl model is a really, really useful tool. And finally, we were talking about other worlds, even through in the mid-1970s. Having talked about my impressions of the book and the core ideas that I take from it, the question for the listener might be, so what? Aside from encouraging you to read Peterson's book, which, to be honest, is probably not for everyone, I think my main point is simple. There is truly nothing new in this hobby. Someone has probably discussed the stuff you were thinking about, and possibly more deeply than you realise. I have been encouraged to read again the early issues of Alarums and Excursions, one of the foremost APAs of the period, which I had collected and which, right now, are still available to the curious. Sharing Peterson's love for history, I have been enjoying the debates that raged 40 years ago, and which still echo today. There is much there from which we can learn. More importantly, I feel as though I have a new appreciation for the evolution of this hobby that I love. 
In fact, I think it goes deeper than hobby and agree with those early adopters who saw the potential for role-playing games as a form of art. But most of all, I feel that my own assumptions about the ways in which I play have been given a firm shake. I want to blend Black Owl's forms more actively into my games. I fear that I have allowed my own sessions and campaigns to become overly purist in perhaps just one or two of the forms he proposes. I have fallen prey to that which I despise in others, to place myself too firmly into one camp and refuse to see that, in actuality, the labels and badges we wear are illusory and abstract. In my view, typology is useful only insofar as it informs us to our blind spots. My rejection of Black Owl's role-playing form, better described by Black Owl himself, was always based on a misconception. I had assumed that role-playing equated to play-acting, to talking in character, using an alternative voice and even to cosplay. That is not what role-playing meant in 1980. Quote, The first form is role-playing. Blackout identified this form of game as one wherein the PCs are by far the most important thing in the game. All considerations about tactics or accumulation of power are secondary to letting the players inhabit their characters. It is a game form where killing PCs isn't just pointless, it's counterproductive. This type of game tends to show a considerable degree of cooperation between the players themselves and the game master, where character actions have a significant influence over the flow of events. End quote. In this sense, I have always been a role player, but I have also always been a wargamer, simulationist and storyteller, but even that is misleading. I believe that Black Owl was right to assert that we all blend role-playing, wargaming, simulation and storytelling to different degrees. The best course is to honestly assess these forms in our play and talk more about what we truly want with our fellow players and GMs. In the end, I was struck again by the insight that Daniel Jones gave me back in 2020, The problem the community suffers from most is a lack of open discussion on what experience we are seeking from our play. They were talking about this in 1975, ladies and gentlemen. One guy was even talking, as Daniel and I have done, about playing in games where the players do not know the rules, so that we can help create a deeper otherworld immersion. There is nothing new to discover, only the challenge to better understand each other's preferences and desires so that, together, we can help mould the incredibly plastic thing that we call a role-playing game to fit our group of friends. Game on. I hope you are enjoying this episode of Roleplay Rescue. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. You can also find the Roleplay Rescue page on Facebook, join our RPR group on MeWe, or follow me at UbiquitousRat on Twitter. If you want to support the show, you can join the Roleplay Rescue Patreon and gain access to weekly Dungeon Masters Diary episodes and early access to every episode of the main show. Patrons also gain access to the Roleplay Rescue Discord. You can find the Patreon page at patreon.com slash rpgrescue. All the links mentioned here are in the show notes. Thanks in advance for your support. Before we dive into the more recent call-ins, I just wanted to add a word of thanks to everyone who has supported the show through the years and, well, especially over the past few months. I am very aware that the show has turned somewhat inward, and instead of being focused outward on the great vastness of our hobby, episodes have become somewhat introspective. This has meant that some listeners have turned away, but you, 
dear listener, by tuning into this and previous episodes, have shown you stand by me and by this community. And, well, for that, I thank you. Ultimately, this is a personal show. It's always been, first and foremost, a show produced by me to express, well, my questions, my frustrations, hopes and desires, all about role-playing games. But it is truly a community show. I have been trying to reach out to a wider audience and invite people back to the table. A recent comment from a new patron expressed it well. You have the best callers. And it's true. I really do have a wonderful bunch of listeners and callers. Thank you. Let's not forget that at this time of global pandemic, a year on from when the UK went into its first lockdown, many of us have lost people we love. Family, friends, we've lost jobs. We've had a tough time, frankly, and it's been challenging. I believe that by standing together, we have got through this together. And I know that for me, you have made the biggest difference. So once again, thank you. And now it's time for some call-ins. Hello, Chay. It's just Safer here. I hope you're keeping well. It sounds like you're making progress on your uh, anxiety and your on your gaming. So uh, I'm pleased by that. You seem to have a quite a lively discussion going on here about your uh, GM rules, and uh, you've managed to get my little brain cell rattling around my head again. So I just thought I'd feel like I'd join the conversation and put in some uh, hopefully. Um, worthwhile comments uh, about uh, railroading after what you said in your episode 808 about your rule 4 so I found that I'm actually more comfortable with uh, being railroaded and compelled into an action or behaviour than simply just going along with a story element for the sake of the narrative I've got such a problem with the narrative's approach that I mean being forced into a course of action as opposed to voluntarily accepting that course of action for the sake of the story results in exactly the same thing taking that course of action. It's just that the forced railroad doesn't leave me feeling like a fraud who was falsifying my own actions for the sake of the story. As long as the compulsion or railroad is believable and doesn't just turn me into a little more than an NPC for the whole game, then I'm fine with it, as, as, as it satisfies my desire for immersive realism. Whereas just going along with something because it makes the best story, or is what is expected of me, pulls me out of that first-person experience and puts me into the third-person experience where the roleplay becomes more of an obvious game or storytelling session. I think when we talk about railroads, we're talking about two separate but related things. I think we're talking about choice and we're talking about player agency. And I think in terms of choice, I think, uh, like Barry says, sometimes too much choice. Normally you would say too little choice is a railroad, but sometimes too much choice is a problem as well. The players that get that sandbox experience can sometimes just be left without a clue what to do. So I think it can be actually it's about getting the right amount of choice uh, is, is the key issue. Hitting that sweet spot, that um, Goldilocks porridge level of choice. Is the, is the way to do it. It's, it's, it's why I hated the Dragon Age games. The Dragon Age games, I realised, were four separate situations. And when I got the third situation, it was exactly the same number of choice. It was a, a two-choice dilemma in each of the situations where you had two sides you had to choose between, and it was a moral, a moral problem. I, I couldn't stand that. That was exactly the same amount of choices in each individual setting, and I just gave up on the game because I wanted my choices to change, and I was begging even for just a single obvious choice to take at one point in the game. And you know, when it comes to like choices in life, sometimes we don't have choices. I mean, if 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 ten coppers rushed in my room right now while I'm speaking uh, this message, put a bag over my head, dragged me into the van, and took me down the station to be interrogated, 
there's not a lot I could do about that. I, I wouldn't be able to stop it. It would be a compulsion uh, that I would just have to put up with. I, I wouldn't have any choices in that situation. I might have the choice to scream and wriggle a bit, but I couldn't stop what was going to happen. So sometimes, you know, we've got too many choices. Sometimes we've got lots of choice. Sometimes we've only got two choices. Sometimes we've only got one and sometimes we've got none. And I, and I think the, the best way to do it is probably to mix it up, make sure we've got different numbers of choices in different situations to, to give a, a believable situation and gaming experience rather than just having an, a, too much or too little all the time. I think when it comes to Claire Ainsley, I think that's a bit more clear cut. It's not something we want to be taken away from people. I think that's where it's not that you haven't got a choice. It's just where you feel your choices are being made for you or where you haven't actually got any input into the game. I think even with that, there could be nuance, you know, uh, the possibility where, say, imagine a, a route through a mountain pathway. One goes through a crag on the right and the left one goes through a more open way. And the GM says there's a rock fall on the right-hand side. And you might think, oh, I'm being railroaded to go down the left-hand route here. You've still got the energy to go over the right-hand side, but you're likely to injure yourself or end the game trying to crawl over the loose rocks. Um, but if the GM said when you reach the, the, the pathway, uh, you suddenly feel compelled to walk down the left-hand side, you might think, oh, where's my energy? You take my energy. But then halfway down the path, the rock fall happens, and you feel your granddad's necklace get warm on your neck, and you realise that the spirit of your granddad's protecting you on this trip. You may not feel so bad about losing your agency in that situation. Okay, I always end up making more messages than I hoped, and I realised that last one about Ainsley was pretty weak. So, um, but, yeah, I mean, when it comes to railroading, I've realised that I've got such a problem with the narrativist approach that I find it such an inauthentic way of playing um, that, that I just I just can't bring myself to play like that. Um, I just find myself disingenuous. I find myself acting in ways that I don't feel real to myself. And, and I feel that, trying to play that way, I would actually prefer to be railroaded in certain situations than try to take a narrativist approach to the game. I've, I've got so many problems with it. So uh, here we go. I don't know if it's been worthwhile. I'm going to call this the crap player's uh, defensive railroading, this this message, uh, Che. Um, but all the best to you. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're uh, enjoying your gaming and getting some value from it. So take care. Hello, Che. Just say for again. I just thought I'd send you another message. It's just that I really struggle with these one-minute sound bites in Anchor, and I always have difficulty trying to articulate what I'm trying to say. But I think I think we need to try and confirm or define what we mean by a railroad. And I think a railroad might be another sliding scale thing. I think it may be different for different people. I think for one person, anything less than a sandbox might be considered a railroad to them. But uh, for another person, just simply having not enough options might be a railroad. Are we having two options or one or none? I mean, there might be a difference. And there's a difference between not being able to take actions and having actions made for you. Is that a difference between railroading, lack of choice, and player agency? Is is not being able to take actions the same? Is that a loss of player agency the same as having actions taken for you? I think we kind of perhaps need to define railroad a bit better. So there you have it, lengthy calls from Safer. Thank you, dude. Uh, really great to hear from you. I'm glad that you braved the one-minute sound bites, as you put it, because um, it was good stuff. I'm, I was left scratching my head a little bit, I have to say, because I wasn't quite sure at first what you were referring to. Um, but obviously, my comment, I'm guessing it's my comment back to Jason when he was saying, why shouldn't the GM sort of force players to, to do his adventure? And I said, well... 
railroading. I'm told by lots of people this is a bad idea. But I loved your comment. I loved the thought that actually, you know, what are we talking about when it comes to this? I'm actually quite spurious about the term railroading. I have to say, I've come into the position that actually this is a negative word being applied uh, from disapproving GMs who essentially don't like it when you have a linear adventure. And I think I would like to delineate this on two two axes, if you like. On the one hand, I think that for me, railroading means a linear adventure in which there is like no choice or very little limited choice of what you do. And I've been brought up through this hobby, if you like, to believe that the linear adventures are somehow inferior to much more complex and much more open uh, adventures, whether they be sandboxes or whether they be, you know, node based. So this idea that you just go from one one situation to the next situation to the next situation is somehow a bad thing. And I don't think that's true. I actually think there's a place for a linear adventure. I certainly do a lot of them when I'm teaching players to play, for example. But I just think even in any campaign, it can be quite a lot of fun to do a game that actually runs in a pretty straight line. The other thing you were talking about, though, was player agency. And I, uh, I've come to understand that player agency works on a number of levels. Uh, this really comes from the Angry GM's blog post. And I, this is where I think that uh, Scott Ream is pretty cool in what he was saying. He was talking about agency on three levels. The most base level is that you have agency, the power to choose your reaction in a given situation. So most commonly you'd see that in, you know, in the situation of a combat or in a situation of investigating a room or you know, dealing with an interaction with a PC. What you get to say and do is in your hands. And I think most of us would agree that you need to give players the choice about what they're going to do in a situation. But I think above that are two further levels. And one of them is the agency to choose the situation that you get into, which I think is where railroading touches this as a, as a concept. This idea that if I'm, you know, to use your analogy, um, if I'm going to make a choice of which road I go down, for example, that there needs to be some meaning to that because I need, I need to have enough information to know well, what's the difference between those two choices. And that becomes meaningful when I know that one way perhaps is more dangerous than the other, but the other way is slower and might cost me more resources, for example. That becomes meaningful uh, as a kind of rough example. And agency at level two is that thing. I can choose the situation I get into. I can choose whether I want to take on the goblins on in the cave or whether I want to try and find another way around. Level three, though, is the one I think is most important to consider, most often forgotten, and where I think a lot of uh, people who are focused on creating a particular story often forget to give choice to players, and that is the level of agency which says, I can choose the goal, that players choose the goal of the game. Often GMs write adventures or produce adventures that have goals set out before we start, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. However, I think it can be a lot of fun for players to at least on occasion choose their goal. Now, the mistake I've made in the past is thinking that somehow giving players all three levels of agency all at once was somehow, first of all, a benevolent act, but also, secondly, some kind of superior act. And I don't think that's true. I think that, as you have suggested, Safer, we need to think very carefully about variety. And sometimes I think at the start of a campaign, especially giving players level three agency over the goal is counterproductive because they haven't got a clue what choices are there. But I think as a campaign goes on, it may be that the players turn around and say, hey, I know we're doing this quest right now, but actually I was really interested in going into doing this thing instead. And I think at that point as a GM, I want to be in a position where I would say, 
yeah cool okay let's do that and allow the adventure to divert allow the story to divert so anyway there's my thoughts on sort of agency and this concept of linear adventures which is what i would prefer to talk about rather than railroading i think the most powerful thing in all of this has been challenging the way i think about games and i just thank you for contributing to that again safer and just on the note by the way you don't have to leave one minute sound bites you know you can always just hop on your phone or on your computer record something send it by email the email address for doing that is hello at rpgrescue.com and honestly i can just throw that in the episode just as easily as a bunch of anchor messages anyway i think i've waffled quite along and that's the only calling i have today so i guess that's it And that's another episode wrapped. I hope you enjoyed it. If you ever want to get in touch, ask questions or share your point of view, you can leave me a voice message. Thanks to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Thank you, all of you, for all of your generosity and encouragement. It means the world to me. Thanks also to you, the listener, for taking some time out of your day to listen to Roleplay Rescue. I hope it was worth something to someone out there somewhere. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again next time. Game on.